Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Theologically podcast, the show where we teach you how and why you should think theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodge, and joined, as always, by our resident theologian in training, Spencer Shaw. Spencer, how are you doing? Doing good. It, You know, I, I, it seems like we always begin by talking about the weather, so... Uh, I don't know how it is up there, but it's a bit cooler this week. Yeah, we're in the 80s. And it has been. In the 80s up here. Um, last week down here, we were over 100 every day. Yeah. Uh, most of this week, I think, is in the low 90s. I'm not sure if we'll stay down in the 80s, maybe one or two days. But, you know, 92 is a lot better than 102. I went to a church camp this just for uh just for a morning to to teach a couple times and all of that but it was man i don't know 101 or 102 or something i don't know how everybody else did it for an entire week i was very excited to get back in my car turn the air conditioner all the way up that's why we preachers only go down for a <laughs> short right. period of time i'm i'm going to our camp tomorrow the high is only like 88, so uh, it's not going to be bad. But I'm showing up at 5 o'clock, sun going down, <laughs> staying for go. a couple hours, and then I'm back in the air conditioning. That's not too uh, bad. So that's it's more my speed. I've got, I've got kids getting to camp age here soon, so I'm going to have to be a little more long-term. But uh, Yeah, I've, have fun with that. I've known preachers that have found... Uh, found mess halls with uh, the extra air-conditioned room and all that stuff and see our camp doesn't have any air conditioners I'm, so i'm not it's... sure if i'm above that special treatment or not i suppose i'll find out here pretty soon uh, whether i am or not uh, for the time being though uh weather weather always seems to be a good lead-in because we're talking <clears throat> about new creation stuff so one day we won't have to worry about this stuff ever It'll be the perfect weather for golf, always and forever. maybe, <laughs> maybe. <laughs> uh, Hopefully, uh, last episode. I would like that. <laughs> last episode, we were talking about Romans chapter eight. Uh, that was our uh, that was our third episode on Paul, uh, but our second text of Paul, if I remember correctly. Um, I don't remember what our first text of Paul was. <laughs> we went. First uh, Corinthians fifteen. That's right. That's right. First Corinthians fifteen. Before that, we laid the foundation for Paul's uh, Paul's uh, thought process and his words and those sorts of things. Uh, Romans eight was the last episode, and this will be our last one, I believe, on Paul's writings specifically, or at least large texts uh, before we start moving into. I think Peter is next uh, for us. Uh, and then John's writings, which will be at least a couple episodes as well. So uh, we're nearing the end of this longer discussion. Uh, we were talking about some of what comes up next, too. Uh, we won't spoil that here, but got some interesting stuff lined up for the future as well. Never out of interesting ideas. Uh, just There's just too much. I've got a list of like 100 topics, yeah. so I'm, I'm not r- running out anytime soon. So that's that's at least... A hundred more conversations about the weather uh, for all of you out there listening. So we'll we'll track how all that functions uh, uh, over the course of this. If anybody out there wants to keep a running record of did they complain about it being too hot today, uh, we'd love to see the stats on all of that. It's always too hot. It's always too hot. 
<laughs> uh, we want to remind you that if you want to uh, see this content or any of the other stuff that we're producing, we have additional articles. We uploaded one uh, Tuesday of this week, and we've had several more before that. We've got more of those things to come, uh, additional content than just the podcast here, uh, all by Spencer right now, but I'll have some written stuff up as well here uh, pretty soon. At least that is uh, my So plan. he says. <laughs> so I, I say. I, I haven't seen it yet, but I'm, supposedly it's in the works. At the moment, I'm just I'm just tagging along for the ride, but here soon I'll, uh, I'll contribute some work to all of this. Hope it's good. Uh, but all of that is at thinkingtheologically.org, and we'd love for you to check that out. Leave us comments there. Uh, we've had a few, and we've interacted a little bit with with those people. So we'd love to uh, love to see your comments there and uh, have conversations with you in that place. You can also uh, get a hold of us on our Facebook page, Thinking Theologically. You can message us there and see all that content as it is released for you. Uh, and of course, you can email us with questions, criticisms, um, thoughts for future episodes, all of that at strongchurchministries at gmail.com. Uh, I check that... Uh, relatively regularly, so it's a good place for stuff to be left uh, and conversations if you want to, though it'd be easier to get a hold of us in the website, Facebook, our personal Facebook pages, uh, and Spencer on Twitter if your question or comment is a little more brief, I suppose. Or Instagram, TikTok, That's Snapchat. Right. Any, yeah, Snapchat your questions to Spencer. He would love to... You <laughs> would love to deal with all of that stuff. I'm only on Facebook um, because I'm the old man of the two of us. Sure, sure, we could find an old MySpace account. That's true. You know, that's true. Uh, please don't go looking for that. <laughs> please Whatever. don't. Please don't. Because I, I probably have one. Uh, yeah, I just think don't. I have a link. I think <laughs> I have a LinkedIn that I would probably get emails from. Um, I think nobody wants to see that. Nobody wants to see uh, my space pages. So it was a different time. There you go. You can <laughs> wh whatever medium you're using, smoke signals. I uh, I'm probably involved. <laughs> he's wa he's always watching the skies. Always watching the skies. So, All right, uh, waiting for it to cool down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and if you want to invite Spencer out for a round of golf, then please send those messages his way too when it's a little cooler out. Uh, this week's episode is going to pre bring us to. Uh, the third larger section of thought, this isn't a particularly long, it's what, six verses? This isn't a particularly big mm -hmm. section of Scripture, at least not compared to like the Romans 8 section we dealt with or all of 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we will deal with lead up into it, but this is an important section as far as new creation is concerned in the, in the writings of Paul. Uh, but before we get into... Thessalonians and the stuff surround the the context, the text itself, and all of that. Uh, we want to kind of interject a. It, it goes along with this lesson, uh, but it's more about the series and something worth thinking about here. Uh, we want to talk not about First Thessalonians first here, but about the book of First Enoch. Uh, Spencer, where do you want to go with uh, that? Uh, pseudepigraphal, you'll have to explain pseudepigraphal probably, uh, the pseudepigraphal writing uh, of the book of First Enoch. Yeah, so, you know, you mentioned pseudepigrapha. That, that's one of my favorite fun Bible-related words. It's a my favorite word. one, my favorite one is hapax legomenon. <laughs> um, a, 
a a hotbox legomenon is a word that only shows up once in scripture. Okay, which makes it difficult to understand yes. its meaning. Yes, uh, sometimes we can't find it anywhere else, and so it, we just kind of have to guess uh, by its etymology, uh, the the makeup of the word, what it might mean. Uh, that's my favorite word, a hotbox legomenon. Uh, so there you go. Pseudepigrapha uh, is another fun one. But for the record, uh, splogna is probably mine. Dealing Our English word translated, uh, especially in Philemon, as heart, has more to do with the bowels. Just always enjoyed that word and that little, little tidbit there. So splogna or hop... Hopox legomenon. Hopox legomenon. All right, well incredible we need to do an episode on fun words in the new testament i think hopox legomena is the singular i think or maybe that one's the i don't know anyways <laughs> anyway, we'll pick her <laughs> we'll do a uh, yeah yeah we'll, we'll do an episode maybe an article something like that on fun words sometimes uh perfect uh, maybe you'll find them fun maybe you won't i don't know anyways uh first enoch is a uh pseudepigraphical work of the Second Temple period. And what that means is Second Temple Judaism began with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem uh, in the uh, 500s uh, BC when uh, Judah was conquered by Babylon and um, conquered by Babylon and the temple was destroyed. Yeah. The people were taken into exile. Uh, from then, eventually, Ezra and Nehemiah with the Persians, they're able to come back home. They rebuild a second temple, which stands until 70 AD when the Romans destroy it. Uh, so that that time of the second temple, from the destruction of the first to the destruction of the second, it's called Second Temple Judaism because it, there's a lot of changes that happen in Jewish thought and Jewish way of life. That comes with being in exile, a lot of that period yeah, being yeah. away from their homeland, not having a temple. So there's a lot of changes, and so that, that it's its own designation. And during that time, you have a bunch of writings that Jews do outside of the scriptures uh, of what we have in the Bible in the Old Testament. And one of those books that is written by Jews during this time is... First Enoch, there's several books of Enoch, um, and they're called, uh, it's called a pseudepigraphical work. Pseudepigrapha means falsely ascribed, and so it refers to a book that is written by one person, but under the name of someone else, so it's falsely ascribed. So First Enoch is said to have been written by Enoch. It wasn't. It was written by someone else under the name of Enoch. And while today we might view that as a negative thing, as trying to trick people or something like that, um, that's not the case. That's not the way it would have been viewed during this time. Uh, that's a discussion for another day. Yeah, uh, But you might remember the character Enoch from the Old Testament. He shows up in the Old Testament uh, he was taken up to, to heaven. He didn't die. God just brought him up to heaven. And 
that's why the author of Enoch writes under Enoch's name because uh, he was taken up because he was taken up to heaven. It makes sense. Okay, well, Enoch's going to have some special knowledge of the heavens, of what goes on in the heavens. But in Enoch, the idea of heaven is not some separate spiritual realm, but the author's talking about outer space because his concern is actually the working of the planets, at least partly. Part of Enoch is concerned with how, in the book, the angels actually cause the planets, the moon, the sun— all of that to move. And Enoch can speak about how that works because that's where he is. He's up in the heavens. He's with the angels and the planets that are making them move. The reason the author's concerned about this has to do with debates in Judaism over a lunar calendar based on the moon or a solar calendar based on the sun, because that would determine when you did certain celebrations or sacrifices or things like that. That's unimportant. For our points, Uh, the point that I wanted to make, though, is that we've talked about how the thought in the Bible, which is the thought of Jewish people, is not this separation of heaven and earth, that heaven is this some disembodied spiritual realm, but how it's simply the place where God is. We've talked about in Jewish thought is just up there somewhere. God's up there. And we see that in Enoch. Right, because yeah. Enoch goes to be with God in heaven, but he's in, in essence, outer space, and so he's able to talk about how the planets move and how the angels are involved in them moving and all of those things. So he's not in just a completely different realm. Um, and because of a, a grad class that I'm taking, I've been doing some work in writings like Enoch, and it just kind of struck me. I was like, hey, this is just kind of shows. What we've been talking about, about the way the Jews used the term heaven as simply where God is, up there somewhere where God is, not this kind of spiritual, separate dimension kind of a thing like we like to use heaven. It's also interesting that in Enoch, he talks about how the movement of the planets in heaven is imperfect, and so he's awaiting new creation. So we even get that new creation language where, in essence, for him, the calendar is going to be made right because that's kind of his concern. Yeah. Um, so I kind of wanted to mention that just as we got started, just as a little side note of, hey, here's something. No, it's not scripture. No, it's not inspired. But it shows how Jews uh, before and up through the time of Jesus and the writing of the New Testament, how they thought about the way the world Works How they used this term heaven, which is consistent with the argument we've been making about how heaven is used in scripture. Uh, and to that point um, about it not being, yeah, not being scripture and all of this, uh, it is still important because uh, sometimes we have heard the, well, it isn't inspired and so we, so we do nothing with it, um, which is not, which is not wise of us to do so. Um the point Spencer was talking about here is that, you know, we use Enoch's name because Enoch would have understanding of this and uh, whoever the author actually is, uh, is not presenting a new idea as much as he is arguing about what's going on within their, within their little cultural sphere here using Enoch, somebody who would know all of that sort of thing. Um, it's a reflection of the belief system or a belief system of the time 
Uh, and it's important to note that um, at, there, there appear to be a few New Testament discussions that allude to Enoch or other pseudepigraphal works, um, but uh, the writing of Jude just actually quotes uh, out of Enoch uh, directly. That doesn't make it inspired, but that means that we shouldn't ignore it uh, either, uh, because they were students of these texts, and it did inform their way of thinking, uh, and some of it appears to be accurate. Not saying all of it is, but some of it appears to be accurate because of the way that it, the the parts that are alluded to and used. Uh, and so it makes sense for us to to stop and look back and go, why did they think? the way that they thought about certain things, to look at these writings and go, oh, this is how they thought about all of this stuff. Uh, and it informed the way that they lived. Uh, it informed some of the words that are used. For example, uh, new creation uh, here being a pickup from Isaiah, but also present in the New Testament. Well, it's a continued thread even through this uh, Second Temple period uh, in some of these writings. So, uh, important to think about that sort of stuff. Of just because it's not inspired doesn't mean it isn't useful uh, to our study of those things uh, that are inspired. All that being said, let's talk about the inspired stuff. Uh, what do we need to understand about First Thessalonians as a as a letter uh, before we get into our specific text in in chapter four? Well, so if you know me at all or if you've listened to any of them, you know I love context. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, sometimes I love it too much. <laughs> uh, I'll I'll be completely honest. I've, I've told people I could teach an introduction to a book of the Bible for like five years and be perfectly content with never actually reading the actual book. You're like but thinking Paul about all the, the historical context. The, the run-on sentences in the beginning, so, and then how he concludes a book five times. You just do that with the intro. Yes, I love I love introductory stuff, so that's where we're going to start. <laughs> Perfect. We, we won't spend too long on it, but just to kind of give us an idea of what Paul's doing here in First Thessalonians. So, Paul uh, took a trip to Thessalonica, where he established a church, but his trip there and his time with the church was cut short because of the Jewish leaders in Thessalonica uh, wanted uh, to kill Paul. Paul is forced to flee pretty quickly, so he doesn't get to spend that much time with the church. And so because of that, Paul has some concern for these new Christians because he didn't spend that much time with them, didn't get to give them as much instruction and things like that as he would have liked. And you add to that the persecution that they're probably facing, uh, seeing Paul being forced to flee, all of those things brought together could bring up some trouble, some problems for their faithfulness. And so Paul has those concerns in his mind for the success and the health of the church in Thessalonica. And so he desires to go back to spend more time to get to do with them what he wanted to do in the first place. But he actually says that Satan has prevented him. It's kind of that's kind of cryptic. We don't know what he means by that, but yeah. in some way he's been prevented from going back. So what Paul does is he sends Timothy to go and check in on this church. And so Timothy goes, he comes back, and he reports to Paul. And Timothy's report is positive. Things are actually going very well in Thessalonica. And so Paul's response to Timothy's report is to write them 
1 Thessalonians. Paul now knows what's going on since he's been forced to leave, and so he writes this letter to address those things. And so because Timothy's report is positive, 1 Thessalonians really is positive. Most of Mm -hmm. the letter recalls Paul's relationship with these Christians, how much he loves them, how much he cares for them, all very good, very positive. He then encourages them to stay true to the things that they have already learned, which it seems like they're doing a good job of, at least up to this point. So he's encouraging them, in essence, to keep doing what they're doing. But the letter then closes with Paul dealing with some misunderstandings regarding Christ's second coming. It seems like that's the only, if you could call it a negative thing, I don't really think it's it's negative, but the only thing that Paul has to to deal with or to correct is yeah, not really yeah. in First Thessalonians behavior or sin or anything like that, like we see in, uh, in Corinthians or things like that. But it's just, he's learned that they've got some misunderstandings. And so he wants to correct those misunderstandings regarding Christ's second coming. We'll see that actually carry over into Second Thessalonians. Uh, some of the problems with fully understanding what Paul means is simply that it seems he's correcting some things, not providing completely new teaching, but correcting or perhaps in some cases adding to what he's already instructed them. And since we don't know what he's already instructed them when he was there with them, sometimes some of the things in First and Second Thessalonians can be confusing because we don't know the whole story. We're just getting part of what's going on. But in this in the section we are going to be considering uh, in this episode, it, it's in this part where Paul's correcting some misunderstandings about Christ's second coming, uh, specifically in the, the text that we're going to be considering. Paul is dealing with misunderstandings about what happens to Christians who die before Christ returns. Because it at least seems, based on what Paul says, that some of the Thessalonians are believing that Christians who are alive when Christ returns will get either preferential treatment in the new creation when Christ returns. Those Christians that are alive are going to get some kind of preferential, some kind of special treatment, or perhaps that those who have died will not get to go and be with Christ. So if you die before Christ returns, you just get to miss out on the whole heaven thing. And it's just those who are alive uh, that get to go and be with Christ, or maybe even a mixture of those two ideas. The preferential treatment might be that they get to go and be with Christ and everybody else doesn't. We're not really quite sure, but something to that nature is what seems to be going on uh, in the text that we're going to be looking at here in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Uh, what struck me about all this is it's very interesting, uh, especially considering our 1 Corinthians 15 discussion, uh, how, how often the resurrection is talked about, not just with Paul, but throughout the New Testament letters, uh, but how much misunderstanding there is in all sorts of different ways of how that will work, what that will look like, has it happened, will it happen? Uh, it's just very interesting that uh, this this was such a difficult thing to understand. Uh, and I say that 
understanding full well that we're doing a whole series involving the understanding of all of this stuff. Uh, but just how often that was the sticking point, even in a, in a letter like this, where, as you said, everything seems to be positive. There's not really any let's deal with this sin issue. First Corinthians is full of it. Uh, and then you get to this topic. Uh, it's not really dealing with a, you know, get, do better. It's you're doing great. Keep doing that stuff. But this still persists as an issue. It's just really interesting uh, to have this as the background in some way yet again. Uh, but we're thankful for it because it provides us with uh, the text that we're going to talk about today uh, involving new creation and part of the uh, maybe process isn't the right word, but how all of that is going to to look for us here. So, uh, Spencer, let's get into the text of First uh, Thessalonians four, uh, thirteen through eighteen. We'd encourage you to read that if you're if you're listening. Uh, I don't think we'll read it through on the actual episode here, but you know, pause the episode, read through that uh, section there, and uh, then come back to this, and this is where we'll discuss it. What do you want to say about the text here, uh, Spencer? What's what's notable about it? Yeah, well, actually, since it's sh- short, I think I might just go ahead and read it. Oh, for perfect! Our, so everybody who paused, uh, uh, listeners, so <laughs> to go read it. So yeah, it second time. people <laughs> paused and then they come back, and I'm going to be reading it. So you get to hear it twice. Nothing wrong with that. Um, Probably better for it. Uh, but yeah, I was just looking at it here, and it's it's fairly uh, short, unlike First Corinthians 15, which Fair is very enough. very lengthy. Very. Uh, so this is what Paul says: First uh, Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 13. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who have died, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have died. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will by no means precede those who have died. For the Lord himself, with a cry of command, with the archangel's call and with the sound of God's trumpet, will descend from heaven and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up in the clouds together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Mm. So as I mentioned, the problem here is that either the Thessalonians believe that The Christians who are alive when Christ returns will get preferential treatment or possibly that those who have died before Christ returns will not get to go and be with Christ, will not get to enter into heaven, something like that. And so Paul eases the Thessalonians' minds by, in essence, giving them the chronology of events when Christ returns. He says, here's what's going to happen when he returns. He says that Christ will descend from heaven. With a cry of command, with the archangel's call, and with the sound of God's trumpet, Christ will descend. He says, then the first thing that's going to happen is the dead in Christ will rise first. So those Christians who have died will be raised. Then, after that happens, the Christians who are alive, Paul says, will be caught up in the clouds with the Christians who have been raised to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So in other words, the Christians who are alive, they're not going to get preferential treatment or anything like that. They're not going to be the only ones to go and be with Christ. But when Christ returns, first, the Christians who have died will be raised. 
And together, all Christians, the ones who are alive and the ones who have been raised, will together be caught up in the clouds to be forever with the Lord. And so he says that to, to kind of ease their minds. But it's interesting the imagery that Paul is using here to talk about Christ's second coming. So he said he speaks of the coming of the Lord in verse 15. And that word coming is the Greek word parousia. And it had a very specific and important meaning within the wider world of the first century. The parousia, or the the coming, generally referred to the coming of a victorious emperor or uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, emperor or general or someone like that who has just won a significant battle. So the way in the Greek world of the first century that the word parousia would be used is so let's say an, an emperor, a general goes to battle and to conquer some town, village, city, something like that. Uh, They would come and the battle would happen. Generally, the battle would happen outside of the city. The army of the city would come out of the city to meet the opposing army, and they'd battle in the fields in the area right outside the walls of the city. And if the army that was coming against the city wins, so they defeat the city's army, what would happen is that the residents of the city would come outside of the gates in the wa- or the walls of the city to meet the victorious army the victorious emperor or general as a show of their loyalty to the emperor that has won and that might be loyalty so that they don't get killed by the victorious army That could be part of it. Uh, You also may even have people who were a part of the city who were actually loyal, not to the leaders of their city, but to the opposing army. Uh, You actually see that, for example, during the times of like uh, the Maccabees with the people of Israel, where uh, you actually had some Israelites that were or some Jews that were loyal to the Maccabees, their fellow Jews who were running Israel. Uh, but you had some that were loyal to Rome, some that were loyal to the Persians or the Seleucids. Or, uh, so it wasn't just that, oh, just because you lived in the city, you were loyal to the people who ran the city. Uh, so you probably would have some that might even have already been loyal to the opposing army. But they would go out of the city to show their loyalty to the, the emperor or the general who has won And then they would usher him back into the city as the victorious king, as the new leader of their city. And so that's the imagery that Paul is using by talking about the coming of Jesus being the parousia. It's the idea of an an emperor winning a battle and the inhabitants of the city coming out to greet the emperor that has just won the victory and to enter him and to usher him back into the city as victorious, as their new leader, as their new king. And so this is the idea that Paul is using 
to present Jesus as when he returns, he's returning as the victorious emperor, as the victorious king, who then his people, his Christians that have now been raised or who or who are still alive, are coming up in the air as they would come outside of the city to greet Jesus as their king, as the one who has won the victory. In, in the case in for Paul, it would be victory over sin and death. That's the imagery that Paul uses uh, in other places. Jesus has won the victory over sin and death, and his people now come up in the clouds to greet him. Uh, his Victory is described as when he returns with a cry of command, with the archangel's call, with the sound of the trumpet of God. That that's victory language. An emperor's won their victory. You have a you, you cry out that victory's been won. The trumpets of celebration sound, and we go and meet Christ with the idea that the perus the word perusia presents of ushering Christ back down as king. And I say that to it's interesting. If you go and read commentaries or discussions of this passage, uh, those that don't believe in some kind of new creation, new heavens and new earth, there's pages and pages and pages of them explaining why this doesn't mean that we go and meet Christ to bring him back down to earth, but we go to meet Christ and we're ever away from earth in that spiritualized idea of heaven, some different non-physical dimension. And they'll spend pages and pages and pages explaining why that's what Paul means and why he doesn't mean what the word usually means. One of my big issues with that interpretation is that it seems to me to complicate everything. The simplest explanation, the simplest meaning is that Paul actually means what he says, that, that he's using parousia on purpose to bring all this imagery, to bring the idea that when Christ returns, he is the king, the emperor that has won victory, victory over sin and death. We Christians will go up into the clouds to meet Jesus, to meet our king, to usher him back down to the renewed earth, to the new creation that has been renewed. That's the most simplest explanation for what Paul means, because that's what the word parousia means. That's what they would do with the victorious emperor. They would go meet him outside the city to usher him back in as king. And rather than, I think, trying to explain why Paul doesn't mean with this word what the word normally means, I think it makes more sense to say, no, Paul means what he says, that we will go up into the clouds to meet him, to usher him back in to the renewed earth, to the new creation as the king who has now conquered the enemy. He's conquered the powers of sin and death. And so this text fits very well with what we've been talking about, new creation. We're going to see this more actually when we get to Revelation, but the idea that Scripture doesn't really talk about us going to heaven as us leaving, escaping, going somewhere to be in heaven but it talks more of heaven actually coming down, of Jesus coming down to us and things being made new, which is the imagery that Paul's using here in First Thessalonians. Yeah. Uh, that last point about 
uh, going to the the simplest meaning and and all of that. And you, some listener may be inclined to say, uh, yeah, but if there are all of those pages and pages, perhaps you know, perhaps they have. Uh, perhaps there's other stuff that needs to be understood, and so that's why they're providing this, that, or the other thing. Uh, though I would caution the listener and suggest that uh, there are also other commentaries that list pages and pages uh, about First uh, Peter three twenty one and why Peter doesn't actually say baptism has anything to do with salvation whatsoever. Uh, go to the simplest meaning first uh, and start there. <clears throat> with the understanding that we sometimes overcomplicate things uh, in order to fit uh, something that we may already believe to be true uh, and just try to work with as much as we can, blank slate, what is the text saying, what seems to make the most sense yeah. here. Go ahead. People people tend to try to explain away Paul meaning Je- us ushering Jesus back to earth because it doesn't fit in their theology. Yeah. Their theology says heaven is not on this earth. It's just a spiritual dimension. It's somewhere else. And so it doesn't fit. And so that leads you to have to explain why Paul means something else, which ends up just being a very complicated argument versus like we were talking about, I would say, okay, well, let's take, let's start with the simplest and see where that leads us. And it fits perfectly into this new creation theology, which, as we've been arguing, fits with actually the entirety of Scripture. It's a better way of fitting the pieces of Scripture together. Are we still left with problems and issues? Of course, because we're human beings and we can't understand everything. But uh, there's what's called explanatory power. Uh, It's a word that's used a lot in the sciences of what theory, what explanation explains the most the best and that's what we're going to hold to at least until something better comes along that's the way science works yeah and to an extent that's the way theology has to work what has the most explanatory power what's able to fit the pieces the most pieces together the best because we're never going to have a perfect explanation but what does the best and as we've been arguing new creation seems to do that it seems to put the most pieces together the best. It seems to be the underlying thread that connects all of Scripture together. And it eases up problems like this text where we don't have to get to some com- complicated explanation. We do the same thing when we were talking about Jesus' uh, beatitudes and inherit the earth. Um, in another framework, we have to try to explain why he doesn't actually mean inherit the earth. Whereas yeah. new creation says, no, we can just take it at face value. And he actually does mean inherit the earth. Um, and we're going to see, like in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem coming down. We don't have to explain why it doesn't actually mean the new Jerusalem coming down. But new creation would say, no, John means what he means, what, what, what he says. He means new Jerusalem coming down to us. Uh, Paul means Jesus, us ushering Jesus back down to earth. Um it seems that new creation helps us put these pieces together the best. Yeah, <clears throat> thinking theologically is not having a theological framework and trying to get the text to fit those things. Uh, thinking theologically is letting the text determine uh, the trajectory of what your theology is going to be. Uh, and then as Spencer said, uh, trying to uh, w- find what 
uh, fits the most pieces here uh, for the most coherent thread. Won't be perfect about it, but uh, trying to uh, see which makes the most sense for the most things. Uh, so if you, if you learn nothing else from this episode, I mean, you should learn about what we said. <laughs> that was the point of this episode. Uh, but also what it means to think theologically of finding the simplest explanation uh, for these things uh, and not trying to overcomplicate stuff. Uh, and we'll see that a little more as we move on uh, from this episode, uh, which I believe, again, is uh, I think we're in Peter next week, unless something else with Paul comes up. Uh, I'm not entirely hopefully sure. Hopefully not. Yeah, hopefully not. There's a, there's quite a bit of Paul's stuff uh, mentions here and there, but these are 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 8, and 1 Thessalonians 4, kind of the big uh, passages where we're going to see a lot of this. Uh, going into Peter for the next lesson, I think we'll just go right into his text, though maybe I'm speaking out of turn, I'm not sure. Um, but Peter is a, it is an interesting text, so uh, I encourage you to follow along. Uh, Peter does a lot of tying of a lot of threads and helps us to see that the bigger picture when it comes to this whole idea. So can't wait for that conversation. Uh, make sure that you are uh, liking our page on Facebook, Thinking Theologically, so that you are uh, aware of when future episodes come up, as well as our bonus articles. Uh, you can also find all of that stuff if you've missed any on thinkingtheologically.org. You can get a hold of us on Facebook or literally anywhere for Spencer, uh, however your preferred method of communication is. Uh, and of course, you can email us at strongchurchministries at gmail.com. Uh, with anything and we'll get back to you as soon as we can with all of that Uh, this has been first thessalonians it's been thinking theologically we'll see you next time